Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. In today's Bulwark, Mona Charon has a piece. Breaking news, not everything is terrible. For the first time in a long time, the world looks brighter and a little more hopeful than it did seven months ago. This is the piece that I think that we may not deserve, but but I think we need. And so Mona Charon joins me on the podcast this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Charlie. Great to be with you. We're going to see whether your optimism survives 40 minutes with me. So just, I mean, <laughs> but where we are going to talk about is, and as I was telling you right before we started yesterday morning, I actually had this very strange feeling. I was out playing ball with my dogs and I thought, what, what's, what's wrong? And you know, was, am I having a stroke or something? I said, no, I just, I was feeling optimistic. I was feeling happy. <laughs> and um, of course it, it, it passed. Don't worry about it. I mean, I, 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 I lay down when I got up, I was in my normal contrarian mood, but um, I, I want to talk about this because you know, there there is this kind of relentless negativity that is making us all a little bit crazy. And it is worthwhile to step back and go, OK, so there are reasons to be hopeful and optimistic. And I, I, I before all this began, I actually used to think of myself as an optimist. I mean, I that's kind of my default setting. And that seems mm. like a long time. Ago. Are you a, an optimist by? Um, no, I am a pessimist by nature. Always, you know, I started the piece by saying, you know, that the sociobiologists tell us that we are not that. descended um, from the ancestors who on the savannah heard a rustling in the grass and said, oh, it's probably nothing. Um, <laughs> right. Those, those, those ancestors didn't survive, um, didn't become ancestors, presumably. So no, we're descended from the ones who said, what the hell was that? You know? Okay. And, uh, and so our default mode is a little edgy, a little jumpy, a little inclined to, um, to worry. Now there's nothing wrong with worry, but what I do say is that, that we have to guard against catastrophizing. And there are a number of things that did not happen that we were worried about just seven months ago um, that I thought it worthwhile to go back and revisit. Not to say you should never worry, you should, you should be vigilant, but um, there are also reasons to count our blessings. And that's important for your mental health, too. Well, I mean, and and I loved your analogy of the savanna and, and whether there's a snake in the in the in the, in the grass because I, th I think of Twitter as kind of our our modern savanna that you're you're yes. going through to Twitter. I mean, look, this is the way the human you know brain functions. You go through and there, hey, here's good news, good news, good news, good news. One scary tweet, okay, your day is screwed. Exactly. Right? Because what is that? There's a poll out of Pennsylvania. Congressional District Number Ten, which you've never heard of before, you have no idea where it is. You know, <laughs> being tweeted by somebody who may or may not have any idea what they're talking about, but you know, your mood suddenly is like, okay, that's it. It's yes. it's it, it. We're done. Okay, yeah. so um, because we can't spend too much time on optimism, we need to talk about what happened last night. This is the President of the United States at one of his super spready rallies, making his last minute appeal to the suburban housewives. I ask you to do me a favor. Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? The other thing, I don't have that much time to be that nice. You know, I can do it, but I got to go quickly. We don't have time. They want me to be politically correct. Oh, yes, let's discuss it. Let's talk about it over the next 10 years. No, no, no. Now, we saved your, you, we saved suburbia. 
We saved suburbia. <sighs> Cory Booker will not take your house. Whatever Cory Booker was going to do. Yes. So that um, that that should work, Mona. Oh yeah, um, Charlie. I, as you know, I have been a conservative, uh, and and I was a Republican for my entire adult lifetime, and I must say, I never envisioned a time when a Republican candidate would make this kind of an openly racist appeal, utterly open. You know, the whole thing, well, the, the Cory Booker thing is really kind of funny at, in two levels, because on the one hand, anybody who knows Cory Booker knows, or, or not knows him personally, but just has seen him, knows that he is the least scary man you would ever possibly imagine. He's a teddy bear. His personality, his whole message is of love and acceptance and, you know, and uh, so he is like he is like Santa Claus, and so to choose him. But why did he choose him? Well, he's black, <laughs> and so you you know, yeah. And uh, so so Trump is saying, you know, I saved you from Cory Booker. You know, look, um, this isn't working. It does bring back memories, doesn't it, of another campaign from 2016? Um, Jeb Bush, please clap. Yes, please like me, please like me. And please I don't like I don't me. have time to be nice. You have to like me right now. Tom yes. Nichols actually had a very edgy tweet. He said, We're getting very close to the guy that says, Hey, look, I bought you an expensive dinner and I'm really a busy guy. Can we just get to it? <laughs> I mean, it's like, whoa. <laughs> that's that's a good analogy. Yes, indeed. Um it's uh it, it shows that that he is, you know, he's flailing um and and he feels the hot breath of uh of the electorate on his neck um and uh this is what well, we're getting well and how is this actually playing sarah longwell had an interesting tweet this morning our colleague uh who does these focus groups and she uh she said she did a focus group uh, last night with women who, all of whom voted for trump in 2016 so these are trump voters from four years ago she says not a single one was planning to vote for him again which is amazing and there was a reporter, a columnist for the the Economist, who sat in on the focus group. And this is what he wrote. He said, "I'm watching Sarah Longwell's focus group of undecided ex-Trump supporters, all non-college women in swing states. They are low trust, somewhat disengaged, hard pressed. But it is hard to exaggerate the degree to which Trump's COVID craziness has cut through. The verdict is devastating." Right now, this this. Um intersects with something that I mentioned in my piece about optimism, because one of the things that I was optimistic about is the fact that people, you know, one of the things we worried about in, in March was that the rally around the flag effect would improve Trump's standing. And it did for a couple of weeks. But um, what the, 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 uh, the denouement was, the people locked in their homes and uh, worried about a serious threat to their health and safety were much more inclined to pay close attention to what the President of the United States was saying. And that, that close attention is what has turned the needle. Look, people saw him stand up at those uh, press conferences and literally say, can't we use disinfectant on, in the human body? I mean, they, that cannot be uh, wished away. It happened. Um, you know, and, and the other side of this, Charlie, is something that we've talked about a lot and, and thought and wrote written about a lot over the last few months, years, really, is, you know, what are people thinking who say they still support this man, right? Who who despite everything that we've been writing and, and, and we have seen, and I've always believed that, 
you know, some people say, well, they're, they're, they're just racists. I mean, that, that would be, that would account for it. They're racist. They're horrible people. And they like what Trump is selling. Maybe that's true of some, certainly it's true of some, but I've always believed that it wasn't true of many. And, and what we see with, with these focus groups that Sarah's doing and with the polling that we've seen is that as people are really focusing and really seeing it, which frankly, they don't pay that close attention normally, and a lot goes right past them. But when they're focused, they hate the racism, they hate the incompetence, they hate the crazy. Speaking of crazy, let's get into this, because I, I started off with this on my, my newsletter to today, the tsunami of, uh, of, in, of insanity. The president yesterday retweeted a story. I'm not making this up, people. People have to like, you have to listen now. He retweeted a story suggesting that Barack Obama had SEAL Team 6 murdered, okay? And and that hardly made a ripple in the news cycle. And apparently he did it again today, it repeated some bizarre conspiracy theory. And, you know, Bill Crystal has a piece in the bulwark saying deviancy has been defined so far down that the president's retweet at midday Tuesday was barely noticed. But, I mean, this is... This is basically this conspiracy theory that, that Obama arranged for four Americans to be killed at Benghazi to cover up for an even bigger international blood sacrifice of Navy SEALs, who in turn covered up the fact that Osama bin Laden was still alive yep. since it was a body double who was, in fact, killed in 2011. This is being retweeted by the president of the United States. Yeah. And, you know, what? if what? he were Donnie from Queens, <laughs> Charlie, yeah. you know, that would be even for Donnie from Queens, that would be so far into the crazy world and fever swamps that people would dismiss that person as not even being fit to, uh, you know, run a 7-Eleven as, uh, as our friend Tom Nichols likes to put it. Um, but it's the president of the United States. And it is someone that, as Bill Crystal also pointed out, is supported for re-election by every elected Republican except Mitt Romney, right? Yeah, I want to talk about Romney in, in, in just a little while. Well, what's interesting about this is this is insulting the Navy SEALs and the guy who actually yeah. killed Osama bin Laden, I think his name is O'Neill, who's a big Trump guy. I mean, he's, a, he's all in on Trump. He actually tweeted, uh, Mr. President, uh, we left our families and we went and we put our lives on the line to do this. Um, this was not a body double. This didn't happen. So... You know, yeah. here we are in the in the last three weeks of the campaign. Here he ha he there's the president of the United States who put out a tweet yesterday mocking senior citizens. Leave that aside. But, yeah. But now insulting Navy SEALs. You know, one of the most heroic, successful acts. You know, of of the last decade. And and he's he's yeah. Well, he wanted from a great height. Yeah, they're probably suckers and losers, right? As he thinks about the military. But you know. He, that O'Neill tweet back, didn't it close with something like, you know, MAGA or something? I mean, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, so so what is wrong with people, right? He should have just left it at that and then and then withdrawn his support for this wacko person. Uh, you know, but no, um, he's still on the team. So that's the psychological bit that's really hard to process. Well, I'll because he is paying attention. <laughs> oh, he is. He is paying attention, and maybe okay. You're you're right. My 
my charitable interpretation of that was that by being on the team, maybe he's really trying to get Trump to back off this. Like, OK, mm. guy, really, 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 you don't want to be saying this. This is this is pretty bad stuff. And and if it comes from me, maybe you will back off. This. By the way, speaking of crazy, Rudy Giuliani, I, I you know, I just we'll, we'll 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 set aside another lifetime to figure out what actually happened with America's mayor. But he goes to Philadelphia last night and I won't go through all of these. Nobody's dying from COVID anymore, even though obviously people are. But then he's talking about this couple from St. Louis, the, the McCluskey's, the, the couple who, who came out and pointed guns yes. um, at the uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrators who were passing by. Giuliani, then, according to Olivia Nuzzi's amazing report, <laughs> uh, says falsely, this didn't happen, by the way, falsely, says the protesters had yelled, we want to rape your wife. We want to rape your wife. We want this for reparations. This is number one for reparations. Biggest house here, reparations. Nobody knows this, but at the time, their daughter was upstairs under the bed because she was afraid they were going to come in, and they're talking about rape, and they're going to rape the wife, and they're going to find the daughter. Okay, again, repeating, none of this is true. I mean, what the hell? Right. I mean, you, I mean <clears throat> a little. I mean, this is a campaign. Remember, the whole Trump campaign started coming down the golden escalator talking about the rapists. Oh it, yeah. Brown, brown people are going to rape your women, you suburban women. Yeah, this is in. So you know, when you when you talk to um, anti anti Trump people um, or or pro Trump people, they will say, "Look, you know, yeah, you know, there's some lying, but all politicians lie." This is in a completely different category utterly different category. You don't, I mean, it's just, just, just uh, mind boggling that Giuliani has, has sunk to this level. I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to say I'm ashamed that I ever thought well of him because there were reasons to think well of him, you know, 25 years ago. Um, but, uh, but his descent is just a, a pathetic display. Well, and also what the appeal, of course, is that they're they're doing it. It is, as you pointed out earlier, it's not it's not that subtle. And we found no. out uh, yesterday that uh, the Trump has tapped Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sekulow to handle his post-election legal maneuvering. So what could go wrong? I mean, yeah, that will be, that 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 will that will be great. That's so, reassuring. So let's talk about Amy Coney Barrett. Because you and I can easily imagine a different universe where a different president has appointed her to the Supreme Court under different circumstances and us thinking that she was great. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So what, what, what do you think? I, look, I I do think that she is mostly great. Um, you know, I, I, I think she has tremendous poise and uh, self-command. Very knowledgeable, brilliant career. All of that. Very admirable fact that she has a big family and kudos to her husband who I'm sure does uh, a lot of uh, a lot of helping there um if not the lion's share um so that's all great um the the some of the questions charlie that she begged off and would not respond to though do strike me as a little weird. I mean, look, you know, it's true that that uh, Justice, uh, the late Justice Ginsburg, you know, was asked many questions and refused to answer, saying, "I'm not going to give any hints or or, or nods toward how, how I you would will rule. rule in the future." Yeah. Yes, how I would rule in the future. But she was asked questions like, um, "Is does the president have the legal authority to change the date of the election?" And she, instead of saying no. She said, 
well, I would have to see briefs from both sides and go through the process of, you know, the, the argumentation. I would need to hear an oral argument. I mean, come on. Well, uh, see, this is this is my take on it was I, I okay, look, these things are kabuki theater. They've been kabuki theater for a very, very long time. Yes. You have the senators bloviate, then they ask questions that the nominee doesn't answer, and then the nominee pretends not to have opinions on things they very clearly have opinions on, and yada yada yada. We know yes. how it all ends, right? Yes. But 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 she was asked those three, at least three questions that I thought were incredibly easy. That first of all, if you're an originalist, what you're saying is, I don't want to legislate from the bench. I want to enforce the law as it is as written, right, or what's in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So that that question right there, does the president unilaterally have the power to move the election? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. It takes congressional action. That's not hard. Okay. Right. Then the second question she was was asked, which was the next one about, um, let's see, the uh, oh yeah, does you know about a uh, should should candidates uh, unequivocally commit to peaceful transfer of power. (laughs) This is civics 101. This is the easiest question in the universe. And she answers her answer to this was to the extent this is a political controversy right now, as a judge, I want to stay out of it. I do not want to express a view. Well, wait, (sighs) if you're an originalist, don't you believe the constitution requires a peaceful transfer of power and the founders kind of thought that was important. So when did something as fundamental as that become a political controversy? Right. And and what is her motive there? I mean, she is the nominee. If she angers Donald Trump right now by saying something that he doesn't want to hear, see, he can't do anything to her. He can't withdraw her nomination. He can't fire her. So um, I don't really understand her reticence at all. It doesn't strike me that that was... Uh, the move of a courageous and self-confident r- woman at that moment. Well, and also it would have really enhanced her standing had she in fact said, of course, of yeah. course you know, uh, of, of course we have, this is, this is a yeah. fundamental bedrock. When I say that I am an originalist, I will defend the constitution. And this is fundamental centrally to the constitution. That would have felt good. It would but, have, by the way, well, but, but she comes off as playing to the audience of one, which we yes, have gotten used yes. to. By the way, you know who did not play to the audience of one when he was in his confirmation hearings, but has now played to the audience of one exclusively? Uh, Bill Barr. Uh, I watched his confirmation hearings. They were a beautiful display of civic spirit and and traditionalism and adherence to law and tradition. And uh, then what happened? <laughs> so, well, I want to come back to him because I'm 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 guessing that we're five minutes away from um, a, uh, a Trump tweet about Bill Barr. So, yeah. hey, there, was, there was there was one more question that I thought was pretty awful. Uh, would would um, she was asked by Amy Klobuchar about the whole question of, you know, in, voter intimidation and and whether, you know, under federal law, it is illegal to intimidate voters at the polls. Now, I understand that she didn't want to judge specifically what Trump is doing at the polls. But again, she dances around it. And the easy answer is it is against the law to intimidate voters. And as a judge, I believe in upholding the law. Right. This is the easy answer. But mm. apparently she's been prepped. To basically just don't answer any question, don't commit to anything, just but but that was that struck me as three easy questions. Okay, yeah. so you, want to, you want to talk about Bill Barr? By the way, though, that would probably no. be a matter of state law, not not certainly not federal law, but uh, but anyway, it still could come before the court. Yeah. 
Oh, I, yeah, I don't, that's an not that not that she shouldn't answer it, but just that you know she wanted to say, well, different states have different laws, but of course it's part of our noble tradition that we do not intimidate uh, voters. Yeah, you would basic. Hope so. It's basic. Yes. Okay. So speaking of Bill Barr, federal prosecutor appointed by Attorney General William Barr to review whether Obama era officials improperly requested the identities of individuals whose names were redacted in intelligence documents has completed his work without finding any substantive wrongdoing, according to people familiar with the matter. So the whole unmasking thing ends not with a bang or even a whimper. I'm guessing the orange guy is not going to be happy with this. No, and I cannot tell you how many people with PhDs and and, uh, great uh, uh, distinguished careers believed this whole conspiracy theory about how the deep state was out to get Donald Trump and it was all going to come out and you just wait, you know, wait for the Durham report, wait for these other reports. It's coming. I just know it. And uh, here we are. Uh, This was the dominant story in conservative media just a few months ago, this whole Obamagate stuff. Right. And the president is still obsessed with it. I know. You know, and, and when you would say to people, look, there were two, not that, not that we really need to rehearse 2016 again, but, but just for the sake of the record, let me just it's, say. It, it, it's in um, our heads. I know it's in our heads. So in 2016, there were two candidates, two presidential candidates who were under FBI investigation. One was Hillary Clinton and the other was Donald Trump. We knew about the investigation into Hillary Clinton. If there was a deep state conspiracy to damage Trump and not and see him not ascend to the Oval Office. Why didn't they leak the fact that there was an FBI investigation into his campaign? They didn't. So, uh, okay, so you're but that has no. Yeah, you're sorry. giving me a headache again. I'm so, sorry. I'm sorry. I, no, no, yeah. no, but it, so I, um, yeah, the Hillary, Hillary emails. Uh, New York Post has a big story today. You, you can you can tell that they. They really feel the need to push something out. They have the Hunter Biden emails laptop with the yeah. smoking gun, blah, 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 blah. It's it's kind of sad that the October surprise from the Trump campaign has to come from the New York Post. But the, I just had the sense, and I could be completely wrong, that the world has moved way past Hunter Biden, Ukraine. Um, and this will this will be heavy breathing on Fox. You know, Molly Hemingway will be all over the place and, you know, the Federalists and all of this stuff. Some of your former colleagues from National Review will write heavy breathing columns. But uh, it's not 2016. This is not James Comey coming forward and saying we're having an investigation of Hillary Clinton. No, I'm, I'm sorry to use language like this with you, Mona, but nobody gives a shit about, you know, Hunter Biden anymore. No. And, uh, you know, look, we are in this global crisis uh, people are dying in, you know, but right now the f- figure is about 700 a day from this disease, but it's, it's trending upward. Hospitalizations are up, especially in your area, Charlie, as you well know. Oh. Um, the weather's getting colder. The weather's getting colder. People don't know if they're going to have jobs. Um, you know, what the future holds is very uncertain. And this attempt to go back and, and use Hunter Biden's problems and his drug abuse and whatever was on his laptop. I mean, it is so, so 
weak and pathetic as an attempt to damage Biden. You know, as as somebody said um, when when an earlier iteration of this whole uh, Hunter story came up was, okay, fine, you've convinced me we should not elect Hunter Biden president. Yeah, and I'm voting against Antifa as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. There, there is no way that Antifa or Hunter Biden will be getting my vote this year. I, I am, I am there. Okay, we, we should. There's so many important things that are going on. I don't want to pass over them, including just what this death count is. And I got, I have to tell you that, um, and we're going to get to your optimism in just a little while. Um, I was, I was lying in bed thinking through some of the things that we've heard. You know, some of these numbers that. We may be looking at 400,000 dead Americans by January 1st. And, in, and given, given the trajectory of what Trump is doing, you know, encouraging this complete you know, manic indifference, this depraved indifference, to the, it, it could be even higher. I haven't even looked at what the projections are for how many Americans will be dead by, by March. And here we have the president of the United States embroiled in a fight with Anthony Fauci, who clearly has been just completely exiled from all of this. Your your, your thoughts on that? Well, look, uh, this, um, to be fair, uh, this this disease has hit the whole world. Uh, There are plenty of other governments that have made mistakes and stumbles and have not handled it well. Um, But our government, uh, which we used to be proud of, uh, which we used to think was kind of, you know, first world and cutting edge, we're the only ones that I know of, uh, well, except for places like Brazil, where a big part of our death toll is attributable to the um, misleadership, disleadership, you could call it, by Trump, where, where he has discouraged the basic public health measures that can slow the spread, mask wearing, social distancing, and so on. It has been utterly flagrant and 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 completely irresponsible and crazy. And yet there are estimates that something like between 60 and 100,000 extra deaths can be attributed to the fact that these public health measures were not followed in parts of the country that believed the, the leadership they were getting. And that is a stunning, stunning and and shameful, shameful thing. As a, to use a word that is actually one of Trump's favorites, but and I'm and I don't want him to lay claim to it. It is a disgrace. Now, now Anthony Fauci um, has achieved a very strong reputation with the public. I don't know what the data are, but something like you know, sixty eight percent of something like that of Americans think that that he is that they trust him to tell them the truth, and some very low number of people trust Trump to tell the truth. So yeah, that was a brilliant strategy. Pick a fight with fauci uh, with with three weeks to go. So are you are you sheltering in place still? Are you doing what you were doing in this in the spring? Uh, not really. I um I I do things as I need to. If I need to see the dentist, I see the dentist. If I need to um you know, go to a store, uh like well, I go to the supermarket all the time. I I went to get my watch battery replaced. I do things that need doing. Um I wear a mask. I really avoid coming in close contact with other people, especially indoors. I'm pretty relaxed about out of doors. I think out of doors, the virus has a lot more trouble spreading. Um, we do little dinner parties and things out on our patio. Um, but yeah, what about you? I'm uh well, because I can do almost all of my job without leaving the house. I generally, you know, I have been kind of sheltered in place for a long time. So I actually went out yesterday to pick something up at the store and I'm out. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm all these people. They're out there. Everybody's like living their lives, and the and the shopping markets, or the sh the shopping centers are full. The the parking lots are full. And I said to my wife afterwards, I said, I kind of like feel like one of these, you know. Japanese soldiers has been living in the cave after World War II. And I was like, we're, we're still doing what we were doing earlier in the spring. And like, people are going on with their lives. The world is going on, except, of course, that right now in Wisconsin, it's worse than it was in the spring. And yeah. so psychologically, everybody has broken. By the way, it is, it's really interesting, the power of political tribalism, because the Republican Party in Wisconsin has been all in in minimizing the danger of this opposing mask mandates, imposing <sighs> everything the governor has done. And they have ratcheted up their rhetoric, even as the death toll is rising. So yesterday, <clears throat> we had another record number of hospitalizations. You know, I think 10 of the top 20 metropolitan areas for infections in the country are here in Wisconsin. And yet, you look at the talking points, you look at what conservative politicians are saying, it hasn't changed at all. You had Eric Trump come here and have a spreader event in a bowling alley basement in Menominee Falls. I think it was Ivanka in Kakana yesterday. Um, Republican, the Republican legislature has done abs, taken no action whatsoever except to go to court to have the, the mandates thrown out. It's, it really, it really is quite remarkable how the how reality resistant our political universe has become these days true but that was so again on the subject of things breaking through you know as they did when uh, trump was holding those daily press conferences um maybe we won't know the full scale of this until after the election when we go back and look at all the numbers but it strikes me that trump getting infected himself was a devastating, as he feared, right? But it was a devastating uh, intrusion of reality into this invented sphere that they create. Um, you know, he has been remarkably successful at creating his own reality and, and getting other people to join him in his fantasy, that he is a brilliant businessman, that he's a great deal maker, uh, that he's very smart, uh, all those things. Um, you know, he, he, has had tremendous success at just asserting things and making people believe them. He constantly lied about everything, his ratings and so forth. And and people, um, a certain number of marks went along. But when he couldn't even protect himself from this virus, this virus that nobody needed to worry about, and then he got it and he went to the hospital with it, and we don't know how sick he was, um, you know, that's that's reality saying, sorry, I, you know, I, 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 Mr. Reality, do not accede to the Trump fantasy world. I'm going to break through. I still think he's going to show up at one of the rallies dressed as Superman between now and now. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you, you know, once the idea got planted, you know what's the thing about Trump? It's like once he has an idea, it, it never really goes away. You know, So he's going to show up wearing a red cape or something. And people, well, oh, I want to call my shot right now. He may not wear the Superman S thing, but he will show up with a red cape. At some point. Well, our friend David Frum tweeted a picture of an enormously obese man in a in a Superman shirt. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean this. See, here's the thing about the mark is is the con man can be successful as long as he knows it's a con, right? When the con man becomes his own mark, you know. Okay, so mm -hmm. let's talk about Mitt Romney for a minute. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I have written, and I know you have written as well, a number of pieces praising Romney. Romney alone, you know, voted for impeachment. He has really been the conscience of the Republican Party again and again and again. And he put out a statement yesterday. Uh, it's, it's not long. 
I have stayed quiet with the approach of the election, but I am troubled by our politics as it has moved away from spirited debate to a vile, vituperative, hate-filled morass that is unbecoming of any free nation, let alone the birthplace of modern democracy. The president calls the Democratic vice presidential candidate a monster. He repeatedly labels the Speaker of the House crazy. He calls for the Justice Department to put the prior president in jail. He attacks the governor of Michigan on the very day a plot is discovered to kidnap her. Democrats, okay, that's that's his critique of Trump. Democrats launch blistering attacks of their own, though their presidential nominee refuses to stoop as low as others. Pelosi tears up the president's State of the Union speech on national television. Keith Olbermann calls the president a terrorist. Uh, media on the left and right amplify all of it. Um, the rabbit attacks uh, kindled the conspiracy mongers and the haters who take the small and predictable step from intemperate word to dangerous action. The world is watching America with abject horror. More consequentially, our children are watching. Many Americans are frightened for our country. So divided, so angry, so mean, so violent. Okay. So I give him credit for that. I mean, he's the, you know, I think close to the only elected Republican to call out the president for, for those things. But there's a lot of attention on the Keith Olbermann thing. Yeah. I mean, okay, Keith Olbermann, and I, 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 in my newsletter, I took some blame for this because I highlighted the deranged rant the other day. I don't know whether you saw it there. Who knows? I mean, but, you know, Keith Olbermann's a washed up sports guy who's got a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Donald mm-hmm. Trump controls the nuclear codes. Yeah. There, there's not a moral balance equivalency between Keith Olbermann saying, crazy ass things and the president of the United States saying crazy toxic things. There is not. And you know, it's it's funny, you can wonder like how long did Romney have that statement in his drawer just, you know, like waiting, give me something from some deranged Democrat that I can throw in here so I can have the both sides ism. Uh but um but yeah, you you hear this all the time from um from defenders of Trump that, you know, oh, the media they they've gone so crazy. Look, the media do not, as you say, control the nuclear codes. The media are not the president of the United States. And just because you can find some you know, odd person saying something somewhere does not counterbalance uh, what we, you know, this, this waterfall, this cataract of lies and distortions and horror, horror that comes every day out of the president and all of his enablers, I keep saying, all of his, all of his party. Uh, because there's without the Republican Party completely backing him up, this would have been a completely different experience. Even if we had had the un, you know the the you know the, the the quirk of of history that Trump got elected president, it didn't have to be this way. Uh, if the Republican Party had maintained its honor and dignity and and pushed back, uh, he would have been far less dangerous. It is kind of ridiculous. And again, I, I want to praise Mitt Romney and continue to encourage him to do the right thing. But you run through the list of things that Trump is doing, undermining the rule of law, the, the kind of you know dog whistles he's 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 putting out, the the way that he is stoking uh, actual acts of, of violence. And the, the counterweight to that is Nancy Pelosi tearing up the right. president's speech. Right. Okay. Bad. Bad form, but but really not even close to being equivalent not, to not all remotely. of this. Right. Give, exactly. me, give me some example of all of this. So, you know, the this is one of those where you know, m- guy means well, but kind of misses the point, which, as I said this morning, um, Mitt Romney should not want that to be his epitaph. Mm-hmm. Meant well, mm-hmm. but kind of missed the point. 
Interesting that he went out of his way to say something nice about uh, Joe Biden to acknowledge that Joe Biden is not engaging in this sort of thing. So here we have a choice between one candidate who is behaving this way and doing all of these terrible things that the world is watching. Another candidate who has gone out of his way not to do those things. And yet Mitt Romney's not willing to pull the trigger, is he? Well, not this time, uh, but I still give him tremendous credit for the brave thing that he did during impeachment, which uh, he he took a lot of uh, heat for. So no, no, we lot a lot of love. It's just this is yeah. this is just our our suggestion what we do. Okay, so I want to go back to being optimistic. All right, because uh, you still got me going with the memories of of twenty sixteen. You know, your point here is that we can notice the things that are going wrong. But you caution against catastrophizing. I want you to talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by what is catastrophic thinking? And give me some examples of that. Um, so um, catastrophic thinking is uh, is endemic. Um, it was, for example, uh, very evident on the right in 2016 when the famous Flight 93 election uh, piece was circulated widely, namely that um, it wasn't just bad idea to vote for Hillary Clinton, but it was the end of the country, uh, that the country would not survive. Um, and, uh, and, and you find it, frankly, among some people who are, you know, I mean, it's right to be concerned about the environment, but it's, and, and about the climate change, but it's wrong to say that as that movie, the day after or whatever it was called, you know, suggested that there would be oil tankers floating down the streets of Manhattan in, in, you know, in 10 years. Uh, because of the flooding. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, uh, catastrophizing puts, first of all, it, it's bad for your mental health, but it also, um, it also pu pushes people away from you. It makes it, makes it seem like your, your worries are overblown and, and you're not to be, not to be taken seriously. Now in, in March, look, it was a new situation. A, a, we hadn't had a pandemic since the Spanish flu, 1918. Um, and it was understandable that there were a lot of things that we were worried about. Um, so uh, I, 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 but I wanted to point out in this piece that, you know, most of those fears did not prove out. So we worried uh, that the economy would not just go into a recession, but that it would be a deep and thorough Great Depression, maybe exceeding that of the 1930s. Um, that did not happen. Um, the unemployment rate is high right now. It, it's 8%, uh, but it's down from the high of 14% that it reached. Um, so things are, are recuperating. We did see a bunch of bankruptcies but um, and, and business closings, but really just a fraction of, uh, of the total. I think there's something like... Um, you know, uh, where is it? A hundred thousand businesses have closed permanently, um, and uh, but there are thirty-two point five million businesses in America, um, and uh, so most of them are still open. And things are things are. I'm not, and I don't for a minute mean to diminish the actual suffering that is going on out there. There is tremendous hardship. There is, and I cannot understand. You know, the again going back to politics for a second how the Republican Party and the White House can possibly resist another stimulus package at a moment like this. But, um, okay, but, um, but some of the things that we feared, you know, we thought that perhaps because of this pandemic, that ordinary public services 
food, water, well, food is provided privately, but, you know, water, emergency services, electricity, um, and particularly food uh, might not be available. We no, all there, 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 was, there was a sense that would, this was the apocalypse, right? Yes, that there would the be massive shortage. Is, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we, we all hoarded and people had firewood stacked up. And I'm not saying any of this to mock people. I, I mentioned in the column, I myself stockpiled coffee enough to last six months. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. but, but rather that just because you fear something doesn't mean it's real. And we should be grateful that our society has come out of this um, more resilient, actually, than we expected. Certainly the economy, you know, the, the um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, capitalism has failed. Well, actually capitalism did not fail. Um, the supermarkets remain well stocked with all the products that we need. Yeah, there are spot shortages, but basically things are, are functioning. Um, and, Yes, there has been a toll on, and it's important to, to acknowledge there have been, there's been a toll on people's mental health. Um, there has been a, a rise in, for example, in thoughts of suicide by people who've lost their jobs, not surprisingly, or people who are caring for an elderly relative. Um, it's higher among blacks and Hispanics who, as we know, have also suffered more, um, COVID cases, um, but there's other news that maybe people weren't expecting. There is a new report from the Institute for Family Studies about uh, the mental health of our teenagers. And perhaps surprisingly, what they found is that teenagers are actually less depressed and unhappy uh, during this COVID year than they were in last time they, the surveys were looked at from 2018. You know, fewer thoughts of suicide, fewer feelings of of uh, despair. And um, teenagers report that they are feeling stronger. This is a majority, 53% said they are feeling stronger and more resilient. See, this is the, the, the pandemic. This is the key word, though, from that I took from your piece was it is the resilience of the country Our our resilience was 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 tested. And I think that's the reason for for some optimism, because if you engage in catastrophic thinking, you know, that leads to the most extreme sort of polarization the, the, in terms of politics, that if the other guy wins, it is the end of America as we know it. And we, right. I mean, I can't tell you how many the communications I see, you know, if the Democrats win, it is the end of America. It is the end of freedom. It is the end of God. It is the end yeah. of all of it. Well, that's the kind of thing that leads to the hyperpolarization and to, uh, well, other, other bad things, including possible violence. Because if, if the other side is the end of everything that is good and beautiful and that you care about, um, then, then by any means necessary, you resist them. But the yeah, other we thing. You can't govern well if you're hysterical. No, and that's the hysterical. But the other thing is, is the question of, of whether Americans still have confidence in themselves. Because when a society loses confidence or any civilization, then I think it's in decline. Yes. And, I, and I think that there is a real crisis of confidence in America. Do we believe that we are resilient, that we are strong enough, that we are good enough to get through all of this? And, and there's a big question mark hanging over. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. But... Um, if, if America stops believing in itself, then, then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. So the catastrophic thinking is not just the, a, a bad mood. I mean, it is, it is a, it is a choice with real consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, 
I, I think that most people did show tremendous resilience and, and they should be proud of that. And that should give them hope and confidence about facing whatever is, is coming down the road. Um, and I would also just say, for what it's worth, I've been reading this book, The Boys in the Boat. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but it's a great yarn um, about the crew team that won the oh, gold yes. medal in the 1936 Olympics in the Berlin. University of Washington. Yes. Yes. yes, I am from Washington State, actually. Oh, okay. Well, it's a it's just a beautifully told story, and and one of the things that strikes you, of course, these these boys all grew up during the Depression era, and um, if you want to see hardship, <laughs> I mean, the kinds of things that they suffered um, were were just so orders of magnitude over what we have had to deal with. And again, I'm not diminishing what any individual person may have suffered. And of course, those who have lost loved ones, that's irreplaceable and so forth. But um, it is important to remember that you can, the, the point here is not to compare suffering so much, but to say, you can come through some really grueling, horrible experiences, not weakened, but stronger. And, that and that's, that's the lesson. That is a fantastic book. And I'm trying to remember, somebody gave that to me as a gift and said that I would like it. And I remember yeah. it, it sat around for a long time and then I did read it. Now I am sitting here in my office and I'm looking at, I have pictures on, 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 on the wall, a picture of my mother and her first husband who was a captain who was killed in World War II. And this was before the war. This is in the 1930s when they were both students at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at them, and I believe that they were classmates of the guys who were in that oh, book, and 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 lived very much similar lives. Particularly, um, her husband, who was was a captain, who drug. I, when I was reading that book, I was thinking that they were a lot like him in in the sense the way they they grew up and the kinds of hardships they had to put up with, and the kind of character that they had, and as a kind of an American that you do keep asking yourself, you know, every generation, you know, do we still make people like this anymore? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and I think we've proven over and over again that yes, we do, but there's that big question mark going forward right. because nothing's guaranteed. No. And leadership is crucial. And uh, that's, that's why this, this coming election is very important. <laughs> Absolutely. Mona Charon. And by the way, um, Mona is the host of, of the other one of our flagship podcasts here, Beg to Differ. Who's your guest? Who did you have last week? You had um, last week. We had David Frum, um, highly recommended. Got a lot of nice comments about that podcast. And this week we have Matt Iglesias, um, who has written a book called One Billion Americans, and uh, it's it an argument for why we need to be bigger in the future. And it's very well done. I'm, I'm finding it quite interesting. And I, I'm surprised since I always thought of him as being very far on the left, but this book doesn't read that way at all. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Well, yeah. no, you, you gotta check out uh, beg to differ. It's got, it's got more people and fewer F bombs than this one. So, I mean, that would be, <laughs> that's the way I, I describe it because you, you have a, you have a diverse group of, you have regular, a regular panel every single week. We do. Well, we wanted to, to model that you can beg to differ, that you can be, have civil disagreement and good conversation. So we have two people who are center left and two people who are center right, our basic panel, which is um, Linda Chavez, uh, Damon Linker of the week, and William Galston of, uh, of uh, Brookings and the Wall Street Journal. That's our the core group and me, of course. 
And then we have a guest every week and uh, varies, you know, sometimes we have guests from the left, sometimes from the right, but, but basically um, we have, we like to have people on who are thoughtful and interesting and we do disagree sometimes, maybe not enough, but, um, but we are civil about it and uh, we try to just enlighten. So that was the, that was the plan for the podcast. And uh I think it's going great. Well, thank you for uh, joining me on uh, this podcast. A little bit of cross promotion here. Yeah, uh, thanks for the, for the turn, plug. Like, <laughs> always, always enjoy it. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. Right now, there are 20 days to go until Election Day.